This is Guns and Butter. Andrea Boss was the ISI agent that Glass met. What's really important about Andrea Boss is that Glass had dinner with him in Tribeca in July of 99. This was a dinner in which you had FBI and ATF undercover surrounding the table that Glass and Andrea Boss and Dick Stoltz from ATF were at. So you had plenty of hardware in the room recording this conversation. And R.G. Abbas, as dinner is wrapping up, looks up at the Twin Towers out the window and says, oh, by the way, those towers are coming down. And this guy is an officer of the ISI. So that is the first clue there that the government, or my first major clue that the government had extreme foreknowledge or was perhaps even uh, a part of the operation because that happened three years before 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Sander Hicks. Sander Hicks is an investigative journalist, author, and independent publisher. He has done innovative reporting on 9-11 for the Long Island Press, INN World Report Television, and Guerrilla News Network. Sander Hicks was the first in the New York Press to critique the 9-11 Commission report for its litany of omissions. His new book, The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up, is replete with first-hand investigative reporting of undercover agents, whistleblowers, and the 9-11 commissioners. He is founder of Soft Skull Press and took a leave of absence from publishing on September 10, 2001, the night before the attacks of September 11th, which ushered in an era of permanent war, rule by fear, illegal torture, and indefinite detentions, all justified by an attack that the Bush administration claimed was a complete surprise. Sandra Hicks, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. It's great to be on your show. I've just finished reading your new book, The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up. You've interviewed in person several of the people who've been in the news over the past few years who've had prior knowledge of the events of September 11th, 2001. You begin the book with an introduction of yourself as the publisher from 1999 to 2001 of the first biography of George W. Bush, Jim Hatfield's fortunate son, George W. Bush and the Making of an American President. That's right. How did you come to publish this biography? It was just a little bit of gumption, a little bit of luck. I was the punk rocker who was running Soft Skull Press and trying to go from publishing stuff that was alternative poetry, alternative rock-oriented books into more of a new political vision for the left. I had done some books in 99, like Saving Private Power, which was a great progressive history of World War II. I had done a book called No More Prisons, and then happened to read in the New York Times one Saturday, kind of buried in the back of the national section, that the large corporate publisher, St. Martin's Press, was killing their biography of Bush. And, you know, I had been a part of the anarchist, anti-war left during the first Gulf War and saw what kind of creepy foreign policy... Bush Sr. engaged in. So I was very much inclined to try to keep another Bush out of the White House. And I really thought that with a wing and a prayer, literally, a uh, progressive underground publisher might be able to 
shift the balance a little bit. So I got a copy of the book, Fortunate Son, read it, found it credible, found it well-researched, couldn't really believe that the author was going through the torture of a character assassination in the mainstream media, and contacted the author and his agent and paid him in advance and attempted to reestablish his bona fides and attempted to simply present the book to the American people and say, you all make up your minds. Don't let the upper echelons of the elite ruling class media establishment tell you what is true or false about reality. You know, here's the book. We're supposed to have a First Amendment that gives the people the right, the free market, as it were, the right to determine what is a worthwhile book. Was this the same biography that St. Martin's Press dropped? Yeah, that's right. They were publishing it with a kind of a veneer of respectability. They were doing it in hardcover with a kind of a pseudo-patriotic cover, and they really didn't know what they had because they had the one, and then we had the one biography of Bush that dared to talk about the Bush bin Laden connection. Originally, Hatfield wanted to put in the Prescott-Bush Nazi connection, i.e. the president's grandfather, and talk about how he had flipped $50 million to Hitler's Third Reich and all throughout the 30s and 40s until he was stopped by the federal government's Trading with the Enemy Act. And so I asked Jim Hatfield, actually, uh, I said, listen, we want to do a new intro when we do your book in fall 99, and we want to put this Prescott-Bush Nazi stuff back in the book. And he was like, oh, that's great, because St. Martin's made me take that stuff out. So uh, what St. Martin's did have in their edition was the Bush-Bin Laden connection, talking about Salim bin Laden and Sheikh Khalid bin Mahfouz and Bush's connections to BCCI, all the stuff with the stadium in Arlington. You know, back in 99, there was a lot of simmering scandals that you don't really hear about now in 2005 too much, but there was a lot of unsavory details that Hatfield was willing to look into, including the SEC investigation that young Bush went through, including the cocaine arrest allegations that Hatfield broke new ground on. And for having the courage to do all this, Jim Hatfield was driven to a point of, after severe character assassination, he was driven to a point where I believe he took his own life in July of 2001, a month and a half before 9-11. What can you tell me about the author, Jim Hatfield? He was a working-class guy that was really trying to live out the American dream. He really believed in the American ideal of self-reinvention, and he felt that even though he had some skeletons in his closet and he you know, had some rough spots in his personal history, he was trying to put all that behind him and uh, become a writer. You know, he was one of these writers who has a real high degree of respect for the notion of and the culture of literature and letters. And, you know, he's one of these guys who just really wants to be a respectable writer. Um, I find myself speaking about him in the present tense, which is strange, but uh, since he's been dead for four years. The Village Voice really put it succinctly. They said he could be a character right out of Arthur Miller because he was really burning with this kind of classic American dream energy and yet was never able to really put his skeletons behind him. So St. Martin's got him at a time in which he was trying to go from being somebody who wrote trivia books about the X-Files. He was really trying to become a much more respectable writer. And he had a nose for scandal. So you combine that kind of working class ambition with a subject as hairy and as potentially dangerous as the Bush family's latest offspring who's running for a national office despite a severe lack of qualifications. It's obviously going to be a sensitive issue. So you, you combine those two elements and then blammo. You had this situation in which 
you know, the Constitution is effectively shredded because you have a corporate publisher, foreign-owned, major American publisher, suddenly saying we are going to burn this biography. And this is before Bush was the front runner, before he had really put McCain away as a competitor. It was really anybody's election, and it, things like this mattered. And you know, I really felt that the future of the country was at stake the next eight years. And I kind of felt in my heart of hearts that, you know, seeing what happened during the first Bush administration, the first Gulf War, I kind of knew in my heart of hearts, not that I'm a prophet per se or a mystic with any talents for projections, but I do believe that there is, you know, if you know your history, you know that history repeats itself. And so it's not hard for anyone to become a sort of historic mystic. My point here is that I kind of felt that something really, really awful could happen if Bush got in the White House. And that brings us to the current order, not just 9-11, but also Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo and the neocons in action over Katrina. And uh, it's almost like we, as progressive media people, it's almost really hard to keep up, isn't it? You know, do you feel like it's almost like we're traumatized and it's hard to get some big picture analysis, Bonnie? What is that famous quote? No matter how cynical you are, it's hard to keep up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But my father has a quote. The thing about these pessimists is they're always right. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. Well, I noticed that you dedicate The Big Wedding to Jim Hatfield. Yeah, you know why? It's the book that he would have written if he was still around. Oh, that's interesting. Now, you then published the book, and you and the author, Jim Hatfield, weren't you out on a publicity tour for the book during the 2000 presidential election? Yeah, let's see. It was... 2000 was actually kind of hairy for us because we got sued. We got on 60 Minutes. We thought it was going to be positive and investigative journalism. Instead, it was just like a slasher job on Jim's background. And they really didn't even bother to read the book. It's pathetic. You know, this is supposed to be the highbrow intellectual news magazine of CBS. And it was just pathetic. They just destroyed Jim and didn't even look at his research into Bush. And so right after that, we got sued by some associates of Bush's associates in Dallas. So 2000 was pretty rough for us. But in 2001, after Bush had literally taken the White House, we reprinted the book in June of 2001. And so as you can see in the movie Horns and Halos, which is on DVD now too, uh, we went to Chicago together in June of 2001 and relaunched the book, got a new distributor and new materials, and we started naming names, and we got really aggressive together, and we talked about some of Hatfield's sources of the Bush cocaine arrest being Carl Rove and Clay Johnson. We really felt we were stirring up the pot there, and we were really very excited. So in some ways, it's suspect that Hatfield died a month and a half later, and it was certainly creeped the hell out of me. And I took a leave of absence of, from Soft Skull Press that commenced, ironically enough, on September 10th, 2001. I was surprised to read in The Big Wedding that it was the night of September 10th, 2001, that you moved out of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I know. Somebody's looking out for me, because that was pretty creepy. I was living, you know, only a couple of miles away from the World Trade Center in the Lower East Side, and uh, after Hatfield's death, really kind of felt like this project I'd been on since 99 was now, you know, completely rudderless and... uh, I probably am guilty of pouring a lot of the focus of the whole publishing company into Fortunate Son, and so I, I needed to take a, a break and investigate the death too. You know, I, I'm something of a guerrilla journalist, so I just loaded up a van and went out to Arkansas and started uh, looking under some stones and got access to the suicide note. I met the cop who found the body in the motel, 
And uh, I really had to do that for my own sanity and for my own, you know, my own ability to imagine that maybe he didn't commit suicide. It's certainly plausible in the context of Danny Casolaro, the investigator of BCCI who died a mysterious death that nobody believes was a suicide in a motel room. This is not that, Bonnie. A lot of people ask me about this, and I don't think it's as open and shut as Danny Casolaro. I'm about 85% certain that Jim Hatfield did, in fact, kill himself. That was going to be my next question as to whether you were satisfied that he did, in fact, commit suicide. Yeah, but it's not my job to say I'm 100% certain, and it's not my job to um, tell people not to investigate it. In fact, for all the people that have engaged in loose talk about the speculation of a non-suicide suicide, I don't see anybody going down to Arkansas and reopening files and knocking on doors. And uh, so... Talk is cheap. If anybody wants to go down there and do it, I'll help set you up and you can do it. But uh, don't tell me you know if you haven't done the work. Is Fortunate Son, George W. Bush and the Making of an American President, is that book still in print? Yeah, it is. In fact, it's the little book that could. It it has continued to do well for Softskull, my old company, which I'm still a shareholder in. And and yeah, I, I hear good things about it. In fact, there's a new edition with Greg Palast doing the intro. Oh, that's great. And then there's also a lot of information then in there about James Bath and the uh, Bush family connection to the bin Laden family. Yeah. In fact, I break some new ground in Big Wedding and for the first time in book form quoted from the CBC's transcript of an interview with Bill White. And Bill White uh, is the extremely antagonistic old ex-friend of James Bath. And so he knows all this stuff about James Bath's connection to the CIA. And most of your listeners probably know, but if anyone doesn't, it's important to remember the name James Bath, because Bath was the best friend of Bush in the early 70s. They were in the Texas Air National Guard together. They got suspended from flying status duty together at the same time on the same report. And Bath was bragging that he was working for CIA and interfacing with heavyweight Saudis. And everyone has heard that the 50 grand that Bath gave Bush was actually Saudi money, i.e. Salim bin Laden and Sheikh Khalid bin Mahfouz. And that's the stuff that made it into Fahrenheit 9-11, and well, it should. However, what I break in my book is that Bill White told Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that it wasn't just a measly 50 grand, that Bath was actually controlling 6 to $7 million of Saudi money at the time. And that $50,000 that you referred to, wasn't that the seed money that George W. Bush started his first oil company with? Right. That was for Arbusto, which was the first of his many failures as a businessman. Sander, what can you tell me about the 1972 Bush cocaine bust? Is there many details in Fortunate Son? Yes and no. It was a lesson for me about how to do journalism and how to do media relations correctly, because the Washington Post called it a story long rumored to be true. Jim Hatfield definitely broke some new ground on it in the sense that he cultivated sources inside the Bush campaign in 98 and 99, one of whom contacted him and wanted to make sure that he had all his facts straight and took him on a fishing trip. And that source turned out to be Carl Rove. And that's information that Jim Hatfield shared with me and in confidence. And then we agreed together to kind of break break it and sort of reveal some sources uh, in June of 2001. And the Boston Globe has done some breakthrough research on this, on why Bush went AWOL from the Texas Air National Guard. And, you know, there's definitely some serious gaps in Bush's history in 72. And, you know, Bush himself has admitted that he is not going to claim that he didn't do serious narcotics before 76 and will not comment about time before then. What Hatfield did was Hatfield had three anonymous sources, though, and was not really 
explicit about uh, his methods and his sources. I think the main thing, that, or a major part to remember also, is that the story about the Bush cocaine arrest in 72 did not originate with Jim Hadfield. It was floating around on Salon.com, in Amy Reader's column on Salon, in August of 99. And that's when Jim Hatfield kind of got hot for the story and recontacted Carl Rove and Clay Johnson inside the Bush campaign. And what I think, since one of Hatfield's skeletons is this major felony he had in Texas, I believe that Governor Bush of Texas and his coterie would have known about that. And they would have known that they had a biographer hot on their tails who had a skeleton in his closet that the campaign could then use as a trump card. It's a perfect discrediting technique, and it's right out of the CIA handbook that James Bath and George Herbert Walker Bush and maybe even George Walker Bush himself had experience in because uh, Hopsicker has done some breakthrough research recently about the possibilities that W.F. Bush was working for CIA alongside of Bath around this time in the early 70s. You mean that George W. Bush was? Yeah, it seems highly likely because his father was ascendant in the CIA all throughout the 70s. And, uh, hell, his father was even there at the JFK assassination in Dallas. Yeah, that's right. With regard to your book, The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up, why did you call the book The Big Wedding? The Big Wedding was a code word that the so-called terrorists used about the attack. And I thought it was oddly poetic because... um, If you think about William Blake's poem, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, or you think about uh, the Book of Revelations and the Horror of Babylon, and the Big Wedding was something I could kind of grab out of my research and sort of hold it up as a complex, poetic name that has several different layers of meaning. So the name itself sort of invites the reader to, to think of, to sort of go beyond and find different layers of meaning inside one term. Exactly. And what is the quote from William Blake? Oh, yeah. After I decided to call the book The Big Wedding, I went back and reread The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And I actually found this great quote that it makes me think about Jim Hatfield and all the other whistleblowers who get their butts kicked for speaking the truth. Here's the quote from Blake. Now the sneaking serpent walks in mild humility, and the just man rages in the wilds where lions roam. So I put that in the book right underneath the dedication to Jim Hatfield, because not only is this the book that Jim Hatfield would have written, but it's the book I think that a lot of people in the book would have written. And I kept on finding almost like residues or ghosts or living spirits. Well, how to put this in a most succinct, respectable way? I kept on finding whistleblowers that were just a lot like Jim Hatfield, people that were working class, they were ambitious, they were truthful, they were almost naive to think that just by speaking the truth, you'll survive and get somewhere in this world and defeat this monstrous snake-like system that is in power in this country and on this planet. I'm speaking with investigative journalist, author, and publisher, Sander Hicks. The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up. Today's show is part one. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Sander, in your first chapter in The Big Wedding, Randy Glass, Wise Guy and Spy, you refer to something called Operation Diamondback. What was Operation Diamondback? Operation Diamondback was an operation that was a part of the Joint Terrorist Task Force. You had people from FBI, ATF, and Customs 
working with street-savvy informants like Randy Glass down in Florida, infiltrating international arms deals. Now, Glass's background is that he was this sort of, he was a wise guy in the sense that he had some loose, vague connections to the Gotti family and the Gambino family, and he was a jewelry con man. And uh, so he had to go to prison. He got caught after a lifetime of being a con man and a very talented one at that. As you can see on this Dateline NBC piece, Dateline did a piece in which he walks into a store and he comes out with like a handful of diamonds. He was able to like convince some guy to give him diamonds on credit. But anyway, Glass eventually got caught and decided to work for the feds to get a reduced sentence. He had a connection to an Egyptian arms dealer. And so that's basically what set up Operation Diamondback. It was built on the fact that you had a very talented informant who was so embroiled in the international criminal underworld that he could act as a door to FBI and ATF infiltrating international arms deals. Unfortunately, the Egyptian arms dealer, Dia Moishin, set the whole operation up with Pakistani arms buyers that were linked to the Pakistani ISI. And if you know your history, you know that the ISI have been the darlings, or you could say the bitches, of the CIA ever since the Mujahideen Soviet Civil War. And Covert Action Information Bulletin likes to call it a client relationship in the sense that the CIA is almost like the client or the pimp, and the ISI does their bidding and works for them. So you had an operation in which low-level intelligence, law enforcement, ATF, and FBI were basically going where they should not go, where the CIA traditionally does not like them to go. And uh, that became very evident. At the end of the operation, the criminal court complaint was sanitized. Instead of them going after these guys when they made the arrests and being able to say Pakistan, be able to say arms buyers who want, who want anti-aircraft missiles and nuclear weapons, the CIA put pressure on the FBI and the ATF and forced them very successfully to sanitize the complaint. Instead of saying Pakistan, it said a uh, country, and instead of saying nuclear components, that was just off the table. So you had this extremely dangerous situation by which the Pakistani ISI wanted to buy nuclear components and major weaponry from international dealers. But when FBI and ATF really wanted to go after the Pakistani ISI, they were not allowed to. Now, Randy Glass was working as an informant for the ATF and the FBI. Isn't that right? right? Yeah, because he was working for the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which involved David Frasca of Florida, who we'll talk about in a second, I'm sure. Exactly. Now, who was Raja Ghulam Abbas? Yeah, R.G. Abbas was the ISI agent that Glass met. What's really important about R.G. Abbas is that Glass had dinner with him in Tribeca in July of 99. This was a dinner in which you had FBI and ATF undercover surrounding the table that Glass and R.G. Abbas and Dick Stoltz from ATF were at. So you had plenty of hardware in the room recording this conversation. And R.G. Abbas, as dinner is wrapping up, looks up at the Twin Towers out the window and says, oh, by the way, those towers are coming down. Earlier at dinner, he had said stuff like, you know, we would have no problem killing this entire restaurant full of Americans because it's full of Americans. And this guy is an officer of the ISI. So that is the first clue there that the government, or my first major clue that the government had extreme foreknowledge or was perhaps even uh, a part of the operation because that happened three years before 9-11. Now, this Tribeca restaurant, isn't that owned by actor Robert De Niro? Yeah, Tribeca Grill, that's right. 
And isn't it located just north of the World Trade Center Twin Towers? Yeah, right where they used to be. That's right. So the restaurant was basically in the shadow of the towers. Exactly. And that's why R.G. Abbas you know, only had to look up and it seemed kind of natural to make this confession or prediction. And now this, what's really interesting, though, is that when the operation was over and it came to you know, kind of an abrupt halt because the FBI and ATF were messing with a CIA-protected operation, Randy Glass had to go to prison for a reduced sentence of seven months. But before he went in, in July of 2001, this is a couple of years later, obviously, he is really concerned because he really feels that some sort of threat against the World Trade Center is fast coming to a head. So he writes a note, very similar to Delmar Vreeland. He writes a note, and he kept copies of it, and he showed me copies. And he started faxing Senator Bob Graham, Congressman Wexler, his congresspeople in Florida. And he claimed to me that he even had a face-to-face meeting with Senator Bob Graham in the summer of 2001, in which he you know, carried forward his warnings. Now, what's really crucial, and I think we can go to a tape later, too, that I, I brought to the show. I recorded the phone conversation from last year when I was interviewing Randy Glass, and he said something that was really incredible. He didn't say this on television. I was interviewing him on television at first, and we were going over the RG Abbas stuff. But after the television interview, he really dropped a bombshell in my lap because he said, I was asking him about the note. In the note here, it says, this information I've gotten from the State Department about this airplane being used and sanitizing documents is, I know, over my head. Even the agents I'm working with are really concerned. He's referring to the fact that the State Department in July of 2001 had said, Randy, don't go to the media with what you know. We know all about planes being flown into the World Trade Center. And that came from Francis X. Taylor, most likely, one of Colin Powell's right-hand men and a former Air Force director of intelligence. So can we go to a tape? Yes. All right. I'll play the tape. What case? My investigation, okay, that when I worked for the feds for 31 months. Right. Okay. From, uh, I think it was in November of 98. They, the only thing that we heard the first time that, that the World Trade Center was mentioned was at the meeting at the Tribeca Grill. Um, by a boss. Right, but why does this sentence say that you got that information from the State Department? Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you. Okay. okay. The only information that the terrorists, the guys ever talked about, was just the World Trade Center. They didn't ever say anything to me or to Dick, to my knowledge, that airplanes were going to be used. The State Department guy told me that. When Dick Stoltz on Dateline says stuff like, well, gee, we really thought that FBI or CIA would, would have taken over this case, is it possible that the reason that the CIA didn't take over this case is because the CIA has been working with Pakistani intelligence? Of course. That was the whole, yeah, that was the whole thing, okay? All right, here's, here's, here's the deal, all right? I call... And, and yes, they absolutely were throughout the entire thing, okay? Now, the State Department was the vehicle that was used, all right, to shut down the case. Now, if you ask ATF or anyone, they're going to say it was their idea, okay? 
They don't know shit, if you ask the agents. They just get their orders. They're like little marching soldiers. They're like little ants, mm -hmm. okay? And they do what they're told. They could be my best friends, but if they're told to stick it in me, they're gonna. Mm -hmm. And I know that because they did it to me. Yeah. Okay? You know, on more than one occasion. So the case was shut down in June, all right? And the complaint was ordered written. And Barberini and Berdowski were supposed to write it together and sign it together. Mm -hmm. Berdowski was ordered to stand down and not sign it. So here's, here's the bottom line. Yeah. Okay. So now I want to know, because these guys are all now blown away, A, the case is shut down and they're not finished. Because we, we, as far as we're concerned, we have a lot more to do, and none of us have understood why it hasn't been taken away from these low-level law enforcement guys. These are domestic law enforcement agents, okay? Now, I'm, you know, they're passing, they're writing reports, they're going to Washington, and things are being investigated, but like I said, intelligence is a one-way street. Okay, so what happens is the State Department now orders the complaint sanitized, okay? So Barberini's all pissed off because he's the guy given the job to rewrite the complaint. Mm -hmm. And if you look, if you act, it's a public record. You can get it off the Internet. If you look, you'll see that there's no mention of Pakistan. There's no mention of us showing them plutonium, okay? I mean, there's no mention that incriminates Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan is not in there one time. Okay, and these were all Pakistani people that were here. Okay, those were the people that were orchestrating. If there was a state-sponsored group, like you know, they say that you know, well, we're looking for a state, you know, country. Yeah. To yeah. No, I know what you're going to say, and we already agree on that. Right. That, okay. That okay. Pakistan is, is all over this thing. And, right. And, okay. Uh, so, so the bottom line is, okay. So when I call the State Department, I said to them, listen. I already know about the World Trade Center, okay? So they assumed that I knew more than I did. Okay? Uh-huh. And I didn't. I didn't know anything about airplanes. Who are you, who are you talking to at the State Department? Well, okay, this guy Chuck Hunter, okay? And then this other guy, to be honest with you, I, I couldn't tell you his name. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because of, uh, you don't want to tell me his name? Well, you don't think it'd be prudent? There's, there's, there's two, there's two, there's two reasons, okay? I know who it is, but he didn't want to tell me. But I had my ways and I found out. Right. Okay? So, you know, the bottom line is, is that, you know, I, if you check, and I've told so many people this, all you have to do is pull my phone records. I'll sign any release, mm -hmm. okay? There were at least six phone calls. And we're not talking 30-second, hi, how are you, I can't talk about it, goodbyes. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about lengthy phone calls, mm -hmm. okay? At least a half a dozen. Okay, so you bluffed, and you sort of pretended like you knew more than you did, and then what did they tell you? But I didn't even really, like, have to do that. I just said what I knew. Yeah. I said, look, listen, I know that the, that, that the World Trade Center is going to be attacked. Right. Okay? All right? And then, you know, this guy said to me, Randy, listen, you know, you cannot mention any of these things, you know, especially, you know, airplanes being used to fly into the World Trade Center. And when he said that, I almost fell off my fucking chair, okay? I mean, you have no idea. I thought I was going to wear the tape out. Was that, yeah, was that Chuck or was that the other guy? No, the other guy. Uh -huh. Chuck is a lower-level guy, I come to find out. Now, are these State Department intelligence people or CIA people? Because the CIA is, is underneath the State Department. Okay, all right. Well, as far
Dodge, but let me tell you something. But these guys are sort of they're at the Dodge operative level, black ops. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Listen to me, okay? I called. All right. You could. Check. That's why I'm saying. Pull my phone records. I must have called 50 different State Department people until I found somebody who knew who I was, who knew my name, and knew what was going on. I had no idea how big the State Department is. Okay. Yeah. I kept calling this or this branch of it, this branch of it, this branch of it, this branch of it. You know, trying to find a way to break through. Okay, into somebody who would understand who, who I am and what I'm talking about. Okay, and finally, you know, with the threat of going to the media, I got through, and people started talking to me. And this guy tells me, you know, like what's happening. Okay, and he tells me what the deal is with Pakistan. Okay, so I get all this information from them, and, you know, I don't hear back from them. I speak to them about a half a dozen times, okay? They realize I'm keeping quiet. I don't say anything to anybody, right? But I'm going about contacting all these different people, such as I got to, I, the only way I got to Bob Graham was through um, uh, Klein. Okay. Okay, and Klein is, he lived in my development. Okay, and he is a uh, Florida state senator. Okay, so I called Ron Klein at his house and didn't tell him what it was about. Okay, because I kept getting the door shut in my face. Mm -hmm. So I called Ron up. I said, Ron, hi, this is Randy, your neighbor down the street. You know, nice to talk to you. Listen, I got a legal issue I need to discuss with you. He says, how much time are you going to need? So anyway, so, I mean, I'm just trying to give you back. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I like that. I've heard that one, though. And Klein is on that that news piece where he confirms Graham because he called Graham back. Once he put me in touch with Graham, he called and laid all the information on Graham. He called Graham's office back three weeks later, okay, himself, all by himself, nothing to do with me, prodding him or anything. And he says on camera that, and they told him that the information that I gave him that he gave to them was being processed through the intelligence agency. Right. Now, what about the fact that Bob Graham was meeting with General Ahmed of Pakistani ISI on the morning of September 11th? Now, please, listen, 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 listen. You could speculate to your blue in the face. I'm not speculating. That's a fact. Okay. No, 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 no. Him and Porter Gross. Okay. Now, listen, I know that. And what I'm trying to tell you is, okay, is that the whole thing is, is one big hush-up, okay? Just like, you know, like the Warren report with the Kennedy assassination, in, you know, the magic bullet bullshit. But what's a hush-up? Okay, listen. When the time came that eventually there was going to be an investigation, they could have already, they could have named the guys before it happened who was going to sit. In other words, look, do I have any proof that our government knew and stood by and let it happen? No. Nobody's going to be able to prove that. No one's going to stand up and admit it. Nobody's got anything to prove it or they're in the ground already. Uh-huh. Okay? All right. Do I believe that that's what happened? A hundred percent. Okay? We absolutely knew what was happening. Okay? We knew, I knew within, I would say, ten days when it was going to happen to be a realistic Okay. You knew you know, 10 days, 10 days before 9-11? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. How did you know? Al, from 
blocked my communications with the, with the State Department and the CIA. So even though you were fired from being an informant in June of 2001, you were still I'm communicating? In jail. They put me in jail. They don't know what to do with me. Don't you understand? Right. See, I'm not one of... Listen, I don't give a fuck how good of a guy you are, how much of a patriot you are, okay? I was so straight with those guys. I went out of my way. I let them... My wife, who was never in any trouble, who's a, who's a multi-millionaire ten times over, Okay? Mm -hmm. Her family's worth $200 million during the shipping business. Check them out. Club it off. Okay? We had a large house. We were living in about $800,000 house, having a $2 million house built when this was going on. She allowed, and she owned the house, she allowed the feds to use her house to come in and wire it three hours before the bad guys were coming into town for a meeting. She would go to, to the supermarket and buy a fruit platter, bring it, I'd introduce her, you know, so they would feel comfortable, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Then the idiot feds, when the, when the 32 million was supposed to come, well, they wanted to have a joint signature, okay? So Dick Stoltz, who was my undercover guy, his name was Ray Spears, was his undercover name, was going to be a signer, okay, and Mohammed Malik. They each put up $500 into our, when I say our, my wife's corporate checking account. Because you can't have, in the state of Florida, a dual signature checking account unless it's corporate. Mm -hmm. So the feds didn't even know that. So now they've got Malik, got on a plane, flew down here. They're on crunch time. My wife volunteers, okay? She's in no trouble, okay? Never in her life. Stands up, and believe me, was petrified of this whole thing, okay? Stands up, allows them to use her corporate information. Her corporate information, which is her personal information also, is sent to Al-Qaeda people and Bin Laden's people and the Taliban and the ISI, okay? And when they say that the 32 million is never sent, that's a 100% lie. I know for a fact. And so do the, so do the local agents. So, well, the FBI does anyway. So the money did come in for the guns? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. $32 million hit the bank in New York to be routed to First Union Bank, which is now Wachovia. Okay. Where, yeah, well, who, uh, where'd the money end up? They the State Department bounced it back. They sent it back because they made a deal with Pakistan. Okay, don't you understand? They had to protect Pakistan at all costs. Mm -hmm. So for that money to come through, okay, came from a bank out of um, Qatar, mm -hmm. okay? But it was linked to the ISI. Yeah, right. Okay, so they didn't want to embarrass them. So they had to bounce the money back and say that the money never came, which is what the complaint read. Right. Okay? The whole thing was a whitewash. Good, Randy. We'll talk more soon, okay? I'm speaking with investigative journalist, author, and publisher Sandra Hicks. The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up. Today's show is part one. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You mentioned in your book that at this dinner at the Tribeca Grill, when Randy Glass is having dinner with this Pakistani arms dealer 
who points up to the towers and says those towers are coming down. You mentioned that there were actually a good dozen FBI terrorism task force officials that were seated at different tables. Right. And this was all being recorded, right? Yeah. You know, and those guys are not all bad guys, too. I I talked to one of the guys that was involved in Operation Diamondback, Steve Barberini. And he said, you know, I can't talk to you. Uh, you know, you got to talk to the official spokespeople. And I was like, I don't want to talk to the official spokespeople. I'd rather talk to people on the ground. And we started talking about this stuff. And he effectively agreed that his boss on the task force, Dave Frasca, was extremely strange. He was interfering with the gist of the operation. He was discrediting Randy Glass every step of the way and was discounting what Randy Glass had to say and and it was just he was very odd. And this is the same David Frasca that comes up when you talk about other FBI whistleblowers in other parts of the country, like Robert Wright, who was tracking bin Laden financials out of Chicago, said that that the FBI basically squelched the investigation and Dave Frasca's name was mentioned. Or Colleen Rowley. I've talked to her. She's the Time magazine person of the year from 2002, or one of them, Whistleblower of the Year, right? And she also talks about Frasca. And so you have to kind of, I'm kind of in the Rupert camp on this one, that Frasca is obviously working for something else, something other than truth, justice, and the American way, whatever that is. You know, Rupert speculates that perhaps Frasca is CIA or a CIA mole inside of FBI, which is a process called sheep dipping. You know, Colleen Rowley didn't think it was CIA, and I'm not certain it's CIA. It could be something else. It could be some sort of international force that's extremely stealthy and extremely powerful. Uh, it could be the international uh, international financial capital. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm talking about materials that's in Chapter 9 of the book. Sander, David Frasca became well-known after 9-11 because, as you've pointed out, he thwarted Colleen Rowley's investigation. He thwarted other people's investigations into the coming events of 9-11. But the fact that he was promoted after 9-11 would indicate to me that he reports to higher-ups in the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? When I was talking to ATF's agent, Steve Barberini, he assumed Frasca had been demoted. He assumed Frasca had been so what's the word I'm looking for, disruptive to getting the bad guys behind bars. He thought Frasca had been given a desk job, you know, shuffled off somewhere, sitting in a basement somewhere in FBI headquarters. And I said, you're right, Frasca's in FBI headquarters, but he's not in a dead-end desk job. He's now promoted to number three in charge of domestic terrorism. And Barberini said, you're kidding me. And I said, nope. And Barberini was like, well, that's why I fight to stay on the bottom. (laughs) I just like laughed. I was like, yeah, but if you're a real patriot, you know, and you really want to do your job, then you might have to expand your paradigm, my brother. You were quoting earlier from a letter that informant Randy Glass had written to Senator Bob Graham from Florida. Yeah. And Randy Glass was trying to tip off Bob Graham, Senator Bob Graham, as I understand it, yep. of a coming attack on the World Trade Center. Right, and that's never been doubted. In fact, you can see footage on the web of Senator Bob Graham being confronted about this by an ace young reporter named Kathleen Walter of Florida, and she got him to basically confirm that Glass did give him this warning. Exactly. And then we come to find out that Senator Bob Graham and Representative Porter Goss at that time were in Pakistan, in fact, shortly before the events of 9-11. Right. And then again, on the very morning of September 11th, 2001, the two of them were having breakfast with Pakistani General 
Mahmoud Ahmed. Yeah. Michel Chosadovsky has done a lot of work on this. Yeah. And that, in fact, it was General Mahmoud who had authorized Saeed Sheikh to wire $100,000 to Mohammed Atta. That's correct. And I think that's probably one of the biggest smoking guns of all of this. And I know that you can't reduce 9-11 into a single smoking gun when you're trying to advance alternative theories, but that's a pretty major fact. And in fact, if you really trace this down, you'll see that the White House itself is very scared of that fact because it's provable. Times of India reported it, and AFP, the French news agency, also reported it. So it does exist out there in legitimate media sources outside of the U.S. matrix of lies uh, and so-called media. So you can't really fight this fact by coming after it by shaking its credibility down to nothing. So all the White House can do is just all out obscure it. And so when you see the White House press conference transcripts of Condoleezza Rice being asked about this by a certain Indian reporter, suddenly the name of General Ahmed is rubbed out of the transcript. It says inaudible. And uh, so according to the White House, they were never asked about General Ahmed. But that's a really crucial fact. So if Pakistan is funding the al-Qaeda terrorists, then why is it that Pakistan before 9-11 was a U.S. ally and was very tight with CIA? And why is it that Pakistan continues to be a U.S. ally right after 9-11? In fact, we're, according to the 9-11 Commission report, and they were so helpful because Dick Armitage was able to fly over there and you know, twist some arms and get them to support the invasion of Afghanistan. It just doesn't make any sense if you know that General Ahmed wired all of this money. And it wasn't just 100K. The Times of India went on to report that was probably more like 300 or 400K. Hopsaker, our Muhammad Atta expert down in Florida, will tell us that uh, they didn't even need the money. They didn't even pick up the money. You know, by September 10th, the guy wasn't even uh, around in Hollywood, California. He was, you know, already flying up to, uh, I believe Atta spent the night in Portland, Maine, and then got on the flight the next morning very early. Well, the wiring of the money. Oh, and by the way, Saeed Sheikh was convicted for the murder of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl, wasn't yeah. he? So that is consistent with my main thesis of looking at this in terms of international financial capital, the confluence of globalization and fascism, seeing 9-11 and what's going on here as part of a, an incredible big lie. And of course, the big picture on the whole thing is the involvement of the U.S. government at the highest levels. Yeah, that's right. Sander, before we leave the meeting at the Tribeca Grill and Randy Glass, Could you describe in some detail what the sting operation was? This was a 30-month sting operation, wasn't it? Right. Weren't they posing as arms dealers? Weren't they set up with a whole warehouse full of armaments? Yeah, when you're working undercover for ATF and FBI, you have the entire Defense Department arsenal at your disposal. I guess that's an advantage. And so when you want to look like you're an arms dealer or an arms supplier, because the Pakistanis were the buyers, and Glass and his undercover partner, Dick Stoltz, who uh, he looks kind of like the ATF's version of Charles Bukowski. He's got a real rough-looking face. And, you know, if you saw him on the street, you'd probably be like, oh, that guy's probably a mafia-connected arms dealer. Well, anyway, Glass describes himself as an adrenaline junkie, and he loved the acting parts of this. He loved going undercover for ATF. And it's important to note that the FBI loved him. Steve Brodowski, in these court transcripts, talks about, you know, how Glass's sentence should be severely reduced because he showed valor, he showed a a willingness to put himself at great personal risks to go get these bad guys. And uh, 
One thing about the armaments, though, is that you can see on the front cover of my book, it's the only high-resolution photograph there is of R.G. Abbas holding up a Stinger anti-aircraft missile. And uh, that's how effective this operation was. They really went to the top very quickly of the Pakistani ISI. The ISI thought they were dealing with you know, run-of-the-mill arms dealers, but really they were dealing with undercover agents of the FBI and ATF. You have to wonder, at what point, though, did the CIA or NSA who were friendly to the ISI, you have to wonder at what point did they tip off the ISI and tell them, like, you're actually dealing with an undercover operation here and you should back off. What kind of armaments were being solicited? At one point, there's a mention of nuclear-type armaments. That's correct. According to Randy Glass, 9-11 was supposed to be a nuclear attack. And this is information that's so unique. You don't hear this from really anyone. It's something that I haven't yet to totally digest or make connections to other information about. But... uh, that what they were looking for, they were they were looking for stuff like Stinger aircraft, anti-aircraft missiles, but they were also looking for heavy water, which is, I believe it's pronounced deuterium oxide. It's like, it's water with uh, scrambled hydrogen isotopes, and it's, uh, it's a way to make a nuclear bomb in your garage. Now, did Randy Glass make a direct connection between these Pakistani arms dealers or arms solicitors and the events of 9-11. Was it clear to him that they were soliciting armaments for an operation that had something to do with the Twin Towers? Yes, absolutely. In fact, he became extremely concerned. It's ironic that a guy that's kind of like a a street-savvy wise guy is actually one of the greatest patriots that we know. You know, the greatest patriots aren't working for the FBI or or CIA. It's more like the, the, the people from the street, like Randy Glass, who, despite his criminal background, he's got a heart of gold, and he's essentially a good person. I know it's ironic, and I know a lot of people in um, a much more Pharisee-oriented, Christian fundamentalist, hypocritical viewpoint would never believe that. You know, it, or the, it's the same thing as the viewpoint of the bourgeois media. You know, the imperious attitudes. They don't understand that the real truth comes from the street. It comes from people like Randy Glass. Anyway, Randy Glass certainly made the connections. In fact, Glass is charismatic, and he developed friends not only inside FBI and ATF, but also CIA and NSA. And I think what people there are up in those upper echelons of more powerful intelligence, you know, obviously not everyone up there is diabolical. And some people kind of took Glass under their wing, and they became, they established a rapport and a connection, and they told Glass stuff. And, uh, because he says that he has allies inside CIA and NSA who also knew about 9-11, date, city, means, et cetera, et cetera. And if you step in the big picture, some people focus on this topic. They focus on the possibility of an explosion taking down the towers and World Trade Center 7. And I think those people are right, because I think that they have physics on their side, and I think they have engineering on their side, and history is on their side in the sense that no steel structure ever collapsed due to fires, and it doesn't seem like there was enough jet fuel in the explosions to take down the towers. So it seems that if CIA and NSA were telling Randy Glass, you know, that he is onto something and that uh, there is going to be some sort of attack, and we all know the date and time, then uh, it seems that there was a high degree of planning on some faction of the United States ruling class, and add to that the international ruling class. And just to reiterate then, when Randy Glass did call into the State Department with his information about the fact that there would be some sort of an attack on the Twin Towers, it was someone at the State Department, probably one of Colin Powell's right-hand men, 
who then offered up the information yeah. of planes hitting the towers. Right. He said, yeah, don't worry about your threat on the World Trade Center. We know all about planes being flown into the World Trade Center. And Randy Glass never knew about planes until that moment. And if people say, like, well, who is this guy, Randy Glass? Is he really credible? Well, I have to tell you, my friends, that he got an invite to testify to the joint inquiry. And he showed up there on an unscheduled day, even to this day, the date that uh, the Palm Beach Post reported that he testified there is not even on the official congressional joint inquiry website that says there was a hearing that day. So he testified in closed session. That was a secret session. He testified. It's illegal to record this. And so it's funny that he told me that he had a recording device placed in a very private part of his body hidden in his rectum and uh, recorded his joint inquiry testimony. And he told them everything that he knew. He spoke with a refreshing degree of candor. Refreshing because it's so rare in this world, in the media and the government, that anyone would speak with such honesty. And he said, this is what we knew. This is what I knew. And now it's up to you to prosecute the guilty. He said, who's going to stand up? Who among you has the courage to stand up and to act on this truth I just told you? And absolutely no one in that body stood up and was willing to act on this high degree of foreknowledge that he had just told them. And was this a Senate committee? This was the joint inquiry. So this was Senate and Congress. Oh, that's right. So it would have been the Senate and the House. Right, right. And and that was their investigation into the events of 9-11. Right. You remember this. This is the congressional report that had 28 blank pages because there was some stuff in there that was too sensitive for public knowledge. Exactly. So much for transparency in government, right? The Iron Curtain fell and Vaclav Havel and, you know, remember all that stuff, the Velvet Revolution, and they were always talking about, we need transparency, like the U.S. We are sick of this Stalinist communism with no transparency. We need to have democracy and transparency and openness. And when you look at Project Censored 2006 edition, they talk about one of the main stories that's been unreported in the past couple of years has been that under the Bush administration, it's extremely more secretive. And the FOIA requests, you know, for Freedom of Information Act, for reporters such as myself that like to file Freedom of Information Act requests and get information on a certain topic, the uh, FOIA request rights and privileges have been severely rescinded recently. That's right. How are former intelligence operatives and informants treated after being used by a U.S. intelligence establishment? They're either killed or discredited or set up with false pedophilia charges and sent away for life. And uh, the pedophilia stuff is a pattern they use a couple of times, and I could go into specific instances. But um, they're always treated very roughly, and you know, there's supposed to be laws on the books in this country about the Whistleblower Protection Act. But those laws are there for a reason, and I support those laws, because when you have the courage, the rare courage, the rare virtue to stand up to a gigantic institution that is dedicated to death and secrecy, and you say, this is the truth, uh, this is what I know, the world deserves to know it, the media deserves to uh, have access to my information so that they can report it. And then they're met with, with a deafening silence. The FBI is an extremely corrupt organization in this country and extremely secretive. We could talk about so many different things. We could talk about the 93 World Trade Center bombing, which they probably knew about in advance and probably helped uh, happen. We could talk about the Oklahoma City bombing, in which they withheld 2,000 pages of documents that they had on Tim McVeigh up until the date of his execution. And it's no different with 9-11. When you look at 9-11, multiple instances of corruption and really skeevy, creepy behavior on the part of the FBI is definitely a problem. And I'm not just talking about David Frasca, but also his boss, Mike Rollins. That's something that Colleen Rowley herself tipped me off to. 
And uh, I would say it goes all the way up to Director Robert Mueller. All these people deserve to be in prison, uh, and not even not just for 9-11, but going back to Robert Mueller's behavior as the head of the criminal division of the Department of Justice during BCCI. Even Senator Kerry, for whatever his flaws in his Senate report on BCCI, he said, we've been stymied every step of the way. These people do not respect the Senate investigation into BCCI. They're obviously covering up, especially the criminal division of the Department of Justice. And the head of that was Robert Mueller, who then got promoted to the head of FBI. So whistleblowers are, I think, they're the saints of American culture, and they tend to be working-class heroes. And my book is obviously pro-working-class anti-capital, anti-capitalists, and it's an exciting zen-like history from below, I like to say. I've been speaking with investigative journalist, author, and publisher Sander Hicks about his new book, The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up. He has appeared on 60 Minutes on HBO Cinemax in the documentary Horns and Halos and has been featured in Punk Planet magazine. Sander Hicks started Soft Skull Press and Vox Pop. He and his wife, Holly Anderson, run the Vox Pop coffeehouse, bookstore, and media company in Brooklyn, New York. Sander Hicks can be reached by email at sander at voxpopnet.net or call 718-940-2084. Visit his website at www.voxpopnet.net. That's www.voxpopnet.net. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of our shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.